put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. It's the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. What is it about this crazy mass of metal tubing that makes us laugh, cry, want to flat out quit at times, and then keep coming back for more? My name is James Newcomb, and I am thrilled to host this show that brings on world-famous, not-famous, and everything-in-between trumpeters to share what keeps the trumpet blowing and the music flowing. It's the Trumpet Dynamics Podcast, and it begins now. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Trumpet Dynamics, the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. This is James Newcomb coming into your earballs. It's an honor to have on the show Mr. Jeff Pertle. You can find Jeff on the web at pertle.com. It's spelled kind of like turtle, only the only a P, pertle.com. Jeff is a wonderful player. He's a student of Claude Gordon, wrote a book called Hit It Hard, Wish It Well. I guess you call it a, a summary of Claude Gordon's teachings redesigned website featuring a photo of him in the tackiest trumpet shirt you'll ever see. (laughs) I have it on today. (laughs) We were thinking of doing a video podcast just so people could see the shirt, but you just go to the website and there it is. So welcome, man. It's good to have you. Good to see you again. I think it's been, what, maybe five years or so. I think it was like IPG in 2016, I think. That's correct. That's when we first met. And I think I interviewed you in the very early days of the show. And I, th- I believe your interview is on the archives on my mobile app. So if you want to check out what Jeff and I jammed about five years ago, if you want to hear me as a newbie interviewer, then uh, it's right on my app, jamesnewcomontrumpet.com slash app, A-P-P. All right. Well, man, get us up to speed. What's been going on in your world since 2016 when we last spoke? I created that ebook that you mentioned, I think in February 2016, and then probably met you in June of that year. And it's it's done okay. It's on the Apple Books platform. So <clears throat> I had to like get used to using that. And then they changed things a little bit. So what's in the plan sometime in the future, not sure when, but I'm going to redo the book into what's called EPUB 3 that should work on multiple devices. So once I do that, you know. You mean like Kindle and stuff? Yeah. Is Apple shifted away from using this program called um, iBooks Author. Now they're using just pages and pages can create this EPUB 3 format. So But what makes it different than any other book and hard to put out into paper is that it contains a bunch of videos inside of it. Like currently, I think the file is like over a gigabyte, but that's because it's got maybe 110 minutes of Claude Gordon video and several videos I do that add up to maybe about 30 minutes. So you can't print that out on a piece of paper. So that's why it's a different sort of book. So did that. When the virus stuff hit and things were locked down, it actually ended up being great for me because I went through a complete redesign of my website. And in addition to that, 
to changing the look and the way it operated, I added about 76 currently audio files of archives of Claude Gordon's teaching. And they're all tagged by topic. I'm adding a few more tags so people can search that out. And then I've got something that's coming up literally this Monday where I'm going to be transferring archive audio from a 1979 ITG conference with Claude Gordon at Arizona State University. And it's it's currently on, on reel-to-reel. So got a way to transfer that. So that's going up. I wrote some articles. I had several students. Like one of the things that's on the website now is kind of featuring the results of my teaching. So one of my students has written a couple books. Um, his name is David Birdie. He just redid the Aaron Harris Advanced Studies book. I don't know how many people know that book, but it's it's great. So anyway, just working with students, practicing. And for me, the being locked in more and not able to do gigs actually forced me to fo- focus on some things I didn't have time for before. So it's been good. I actually gained some students during this time. So I didn't lose anything monetarily at all, really. Well, that's good. I mean, I've heard different stories. A big common story from the lockdowns was people just had time to pursue projects that they didn't have time to do because they were just so busy chasing, kind of sometimes just going on that hamster wheel. Not that uh, the lockdowns were good, but there were some good things that came out of it. Right. I think it refocused. Some, Some people I saw during this time said, oh, what do I do to practice? And I was like, I love to practice. So Lock me in a room by myself. This is great. Um, and then some of the students that I picked up were kind of looking for guidance with that kind of thing, saying, hey, I've, I don't know what to do with myself. I now I've got this time and I want to get better. So, I mean, that's, I mean, it's been fun because the, the people that ended up finding me and doing lessons and stuff were looking for exactly what I do, which is just show people how to practice. So I, I have a question for you because my issue because I love to play and I'm good at it. And so, but if I don't have a gig, if I don't have a carrot in front of me, I don't practice. And that's, I'm just being yeah. completely honest. So what, I mean, what do you tell people like that? Like, so my practice, which is probably different than a lot of people, I pr- probably about two thirds to three fourths of my practice is working on technique. So, you know, like I might be playing, for example, right now I'm in, doing about the first two thirds of the Walter Smith Live Flexibility book. That takes me maybe 45 minutes to an hour to get through everything and do it well. So, but each day when I play it, it's kind of rewarding to see, wow, today feels pretty good. I can do this a little bit faster. I'll turn on the metronome and see if I can get, get this a little bit better and more even or something like that. So for me, it's those sorts of things when I'm practicing and the skills are kind of, personally rewarding to me. And then when I pull out a piece of music to work on, you know, whether an etude or or work on some music for a gig, it's kind of like I can just pull that up and read it and then more think about like how I want the music to go. So I always look at it as the technique I'm working on is allowing me to to play any kind of music. So that's why I'm for me practicing those sorts of things is actually kind of self self-rewarding, kind of like, I mean, we're of course doing music and it's not just like brute strength or anything, but people go to the gym to work out and it's like nobody else is there to evaluate them to say, oh, how well did you do compared to this person? It's just like you're doing it, try to see if you can improve yourself and form and strength and whatever you work on there. But 
And I kind of look at it as like that part of my practice is always very easy to do. And some of the stuff you're talking about, like getting ready for a gig, if I'm working on all the things I normally practice, it's easy for me to just go to a gig and, and play. So that's kind of how I think about it. But I mean, during this time, during this time, like some different things in my trumpet playing that I hadn't really pushed myself on in the past, I kind of was of the mindset like, hey, let me see if I can do this more or than I did before. And it was that part of it was like, no one's listening to me except myself. And then the only reason I play some of this stuff or, or have like to demonstrate something might be to show a student, here's how it works. You can do this. And, you know, so for me, it's like, I kind of look at it as there's a, there's a statement on this certificate that Claude Gordon gave to people that did his pedagogy class where he says something like you're certified to teach blah, blah, blah with personal use of these things. So when we talked about that, it was like, if you're, if you're not in touch with your practice, you can't really teach the same way. So that's kind of where, that's also another purpose behind my practicing so that, so the one I'm doing it, I want to be able to show it to someone, you know? I've heard people say that even if they don't have a gig, it keeps them just focused and kind of brings them into a, like a Zen state of mind. I mean, I spoke to um, a guy named Preston Bailey, who's in Nashville. And he said he hasn't missed he hasn't missed a day of practice in fourteen years. That's awesome. Couldn't believe it. Maybe the maybe the right answer for me personally is to just say, This is what I do. And even if I don't have a gig, I'm gonna do it anyway. Right. I listened to the one name names, but I listened to something early on in the pandemic and it was a, it was a big collaboration of maybe six or eight trumpet players and a question similar that got asked. And what was interesting was some of the players that I, that I really look up to that have tremendous technique, every single one of them said that they practiced for the sake of practicing. And it, and one of them made the analogy that, that, I think it, they were comparing it to violin player Yasha Heifetz or someone like that, that when he was 90, he would get up in the morning, shave, shower, go into the violin with himself and play scales and and drills, even though he wasn't playing a concert or anything. It was so he would connect with the instrument. Because I think when each of us play, play, picked our instrument that we want to play, whether it's trumpet or some other instrument, there's something about it that drew it to us. Like I saw recently, like, you know, Doc Servinson had his birthday. I think he turned 94, maybe. And, and he looked, I have a picture of him in 92 in Miami. He looked great. But if you see him walking around or some of the other people like, uh, like Arturo or other people that might be walking around ITG, it's almost like they're addicted to the trumpet and they can't get their hands off it. And they'll, like Doc will go over in the corner and like play some Clark's technical studies or something. It, it's like your trumpet and you or so it, it's like you can't stop doing it, you know, and that's kind of the way I feel about it. It's like to play even the most simple things like a flexibility study, like Smith. And it's just like, uh, you're doing something like that to like feel and listen to the sound that's coming out of the trumpet. It's cool. I mean, I'm 53. And when I started, when I was in fourth grade, prior to that, I'd heard Doc Severinsen 
on TV and Johnny Carson when I was in first grade. And there was something about the sound of the trumpet, just the, I don't know, like the fullness and the brilliance of it and how it was. So I was like, I like that so much, you know, it's like, so to even just make any kind of a sound out of it, I like doing it. So, you know, and playing gigs is, is of course fun, but I can be in the room by myself and have lots of fun too. There doesn't seem to be, and maybe I'm completely off base here, but I've heard so many people like people your age, maybe my age, your age, somewhere in there. And they say they're talking, they're, Telling stories about how, how Doc Severinsen got them in, interested in it, Mater, Mater Ferguson, Harry James. I mean, th- these guys were superstars. And I just think about the players today with zero disrespect intended at all. But I don't see any trumpet players that are like major stars, like in the 50s and 60s, 70s. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's different because I think, you know, the people or before our time period grew up listening to, you know, like maybe our parents and grandparents would listen to big band music. And, and there was more of that. And the trumpet gets featured in that. I mean, the trumpet's featured in some pop music, like some, some of my younger students have come in and like told me, you know, like, Oh, this is cool. This Bruno Mars song with horn parts in it. Or, I mean, there's some of that, but I mean, it's kind of like, you know, probably when we were both growing up, lots of people wanted to play saxophone instead of trumpet because they'd heard it. Like I was at a music store and when I used to live in Los Angeles and it was kind of funny because the the sax teacher that was there would get a whole bunch of students as soon as, I don't know if you remember this, but like when Bill Clinton became president and started playing and he played saxophone on TV, literally tons of people wanted to play saxophone. I was like, man, we need to, someone that plays trumpet that gets people into that match, to run for you know? trumpet right <laughs> or to, yeah, to run know. for president <laughs> yeah it's kind of weird <laughs> but i think something like that will pop up in a movie or a cultural thing you know and then i bet someone will get into it i, I mean i would think of like you know chris Bodie, and you know it's like there are some younger students and people that are non-trumpet players that go to his concerts. Like I only went to one of his concerts before and I thought it was pretty cool because my friends that I were with weren't musicians and they were so excited to hear, to hear him play. And he put on a really, a really exciting show. And I didn't know what to think about. He first started out playing really kind of beautiful ballads and, and melodic things. And, you know, with like a rhythm section things behind it and everyone liked it. But then he built it up and about like two thirds into it, he was playing like some, some pretty, pretty technical things on the trumpet. And like, they were basically like jazz and bebop sort of sounding things mixed into a show, but probably no one in the audience knew that's what he was doing. They just thought he was cool, you know, and they keep coming back to his shows. I mean, so it's like, I think there are some trumpet players out there that, that people can look up to like that, but just not as much as they're probably used to be, you know? Right. You have a Wynton Marsalis who's uh, focused on the jazz niche. Yeah. And he's a great player. There's so many great trumpet players, but you would think that it would be easier for that to happen with the internet, you know? And that's, I mean, there are some that are out there, but I think going to 
like for me, what got me most excited about wanting to continue and do things with a trumpet was, was live music. So it's, it's cool that it's starting to come back after the virus stuff and everything. Cause I mean, I remember hearing Doc Sermonson on TV, but to go hear him in person, do a concert was totally an amazing experience or hearing Maurice Andre live. Uh, first time I heard that, I was like, man, this is so much better than all these recordings that I have. I want to go do that again, but I only heard him one time, you know, but <clears throat> I think hearing people live because the trumpet is such a, it's a, I mean, you know, cause you play too. It's like such a, like a three-dimensional experience where the sound comes out of it, the way it comes out of the bell. You can't pick that up exactly the same on a microphone because the way the tone radiates in all 360 degrees and the way we feel it when we play it and the way the audience hears it when it's coming out of the bell instead of coming out of the speakers is something that you can't duplicate on a recording. I mean, you can get it, you can capture it reasonably well, but it's still never going to be the same as being in front of the trumpet and hearing it, you know? You mentioned Bruno Mars, Justin Timberlake, some of the big names today. There was a time when Bruno Mars would have been a trumpet player. You know what I mean? Like the leader of the the big star, Rafael Mendez. I just spoke to David Hickman the other day, and uh, I didn't know that Rafael Mendez would be an opener for the big names in Las Vegas. Really? That's yeah. cool. I mean, he would open for Red Skelton. So that's just huge, huge names. Well, some of those guys were on... on- on movies and stuff too, you know, like Harry James. I think Rafael Mendes was in some movies. Yeah, it's kind of like there's no one that's that's an icon like that that's as visible. I mean, it, it can happen. Some people, I think, their personality is meant to do that. I don't ever see myself doing anything like that. But <laughs> I want to know about your book because we spoke five years ago. I want to know. What were you expecting? Like, what were your expectations with the book when you published it five years ago? And, and what has changed since then? I mean, I'm kind of one for like making goals for myself. Mostly I'll write them down, but I don't sit here going down a checklist all the time. But I kind of had this goal before that I wanted to do at least three brass conferences. I wanted to do a book. I wanted to like do clinics in different places other than just teaching privately. And and I've I've done all those things. And the book, though, I'd been thinking about for probably 10 or 15 years. And what I wanted to do with it was to explain a few more details about Cogwarden's teaching, because you have all of Cogwarden's books. There's a ton of books that we went through with, with that I went through with studying with him that aren't mentioned in the um, in the systematic approach book. And some of them are mentioned in his Brass Playing is No Heart in the Deep Breathing book. But I wanted to give a bigger picture to it because I felt like I could put the video inside the book because the video hadn't, like it kind of went out of production. And now the only way to really get the video is getting it through my book because I had permission to use it and all these things. But I wanted the book to clarify and kind of give more of the reason why. Because I think in some of the other Quagwarden books, he would say, here's more how it works and to do this. But I wanted to kind of answer the question, well, why? Why do I do this instead of this? 
And then what are the details of how to do it? Because sometimes people throw out a term like, oh, yeah, you got to practice. And now people are using words systematically. I want people to know, well, what's that mean? Because it just doesn't mean starting on page one of a book and go page one, page two, page three. It can mean use the Walter Smith Lip Flexibility book, use the Clark's Technical Studies book, use, you know, the Charlie A book, Claude Gordon's Systematic Approach book, put them together with this much of these various parts of these books, and then work page by page through maybe four or five books all at the same time, but knowing how to combine them so that your practice isn't just chaotic. Because I think so many people, what frustrates me is I see people who go to college and they get a master, they'll get a, you know, bachelor's, master's, doctorate, and they, and you start talking to them or hear them say things. and you can tell they they haven't gone through the St. Jacome book or if they they know just a little bit about it. And when I mean go through it, I mean like spend six, six, seven years plodding through the book so that you get every little bit of, of wisdom and knowledge out of that book to make it yours. So to try to figure out a way to communicate that to people so that I can encourage them to do that and that's kind of the purpose of my book. What's been, what's been the response in, in the intervening time? Well, I think I haven't checked the numbers on it, but I get, you know, it gets paid automatically. And I, once in a while, every few months, I'll look at a report. I think probably over five years, my estimate is I probably sold about maybe 500 or more. I think it's under a thousand, but probably 500 to 700 books are, you know, downloads. And you'd think out of that number of people downloading it, there'd be, there's probably only like five reviews in the United States, maybe like two in other countries like Australia and Europe and somewhere else around. I can't remember them. There's maybe like a total of 10. And I was just making a comment online. It's like, I mean, I wanted to do it more for myself and I was hoping that people would like it. And the people that contact me, like the typical thing that happens is someone will write me an email and say, hey, can you teach me lessons? I bought your book last year. I went through the whole thing five or 10 times. I've been looking at your website for a year and trying this stuff. And it's sort of helping, but I think you could help me more if we got together one-on-one. So it's led to some of that, but sometimes people will never tell me what they think about it or never write a review or I was just saying this other day, I, I, all the reviews I think are five stars, except someone decided to give me a one. I was like, what, what did I do to get a one? But that's not going to like, that's not going to like make me want to stop doing what I'm doing or, or feel bad about it. It's just like, okay, whatever. Someone didn't like it. One stars are the best reviews. One stars. Yeah. They're the best. Yeah. I was telling a friend of mine got a four star review for, wedding business that he does and he was all sad about it and I was like dude if they write some kind of comment like sometimes people write something that's useful in that one star and, and you'll be like okay they planned this up I disagree with them on the one star but maybe I like 
what they're disagreeing with, you know? <laughs> but I think I think so often because your book is very thorough and to give it a one star would be just, I think it's ridiculous. So <laughs> I think someone is going through some issues to give it a one yeah, that, star. I know, that's, that's kind of what was <laughs> happening on the Facebook group. Some people do that. And, you know, it's like, whatever. I don't think about, I mean, I think with, with playing and practicing and being a musician, it's like, it's it's good to be like happy for other people to do well you know you can't like I, i've seen people before say stuff getting down on like for example um kenny g they'll say like, oh kenny g's terrible i'm like man he's like become successful <laughs> just yeah. like i'd like to know how he did that I, would, I mean there might be some other saxophone players i listen to but i'm like that's pretty cool. But. Kenny G isn't trying, he's not trying to impress saxophone players, you know? Like, cause I know people who are not musicians, they've gone to a Kenny G concert and they're like, it was the best concert I've ever been to. I know. And that's where we're in the business of, of entertaining people and, and making them feel a certain way when they come to hear us play. So that's like, that's kind of the whole reason of doing all the technique and stuff is to communicate. I, th- I think Kenny G spends more in on marketing than some of his critics make in an entire year with their salary. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but people like anyone like that, we should look up to be happy for them and say, man, that's pretty cool. Instead of being jealous about it. Yeah. You find out what they're doing right and then apply it to your own craft or your own market. And some people are going to have more success in numbers or whatever. And, and what I'm getting at is like, if we're, if we're happy with what we're doing, enjoying it it's like that's personally i mean we need money to like live and stuff but the personal reward of doing a job that we like is is as valuable or more valuable than money sometimes and this is something that i learned years and years ago and i was just refreshing myself reading your book but it was the tongue placement and essentially if i maybe i'm misunderstanding it but if you can clarify it Essentially, the tongue placement is the same for each note. On or how how exactly does the tongue placement work when you're going up the up the staff? <laughs> there are two things that have to be coordinated. So it's like you've got tongue level, and Claude would use the term tongue level, meaning that each note has its own uh, unique tongue position or arch with your tongue, so that you can actually feel the note with your tongue. So, for example, if I haven't played a note today, but if I were to play a low C, I know before I even play one note on my trumpet, I'm feeling how that note is not with my lips, but I'm feeling it kind of with the placement of my tongue in my mouth. So if I pick my trumpet up to play low C, I'm not going to miss it because I'm pretty tuned into it. So I'm, I can feel that note and I can sense where I can get like a resonant full sound and then I move as I move up the partials or the harmonics on the trumpet, I'm trying to feel the coordination between not just moving the tongue, but also giving it a little bit more power behind the air. And initially, when people start working on flexibility studies, it might sound unmusical to do that, but it's more so that we're feeling the coordination between the tongue and the air because the two work together. And then what happens over time is um is the you get so tuned in to where one note seems virtually as easy as another note. And then 
so you that's kind of the idea behind tongue levels. It's so easy because I'm just moving my tongue around to do that and with the air. So that's I don't know if that answered your question totally as detailed as you're asking now. Well, I mean it's it's I think it's a matter of it's not just blowing air into the horn, but you know where the tongue placement is for a particular note. Right. Like I feel I feel the notes more with the tongue placement than with my lips. So like I could start off and feel like, man, my lips don't want to like vibrate and produce a sound. And once they get going, then I'm like, okay, now I can move around the horn. And the importance of practicing flexibility studies is is kind of to get that coordination going the first thing in your day. And there are lots of books to use to do that, like like Walter Smith Lip Flexibility, Charles Cohen Advanced Lip Flexibility, Earl Irons Twenty Seven Groups of Exercises, you know, some uh, Schlossberg. There's a whole bunch of different things you can use to kind of fit into that category of tongue level. And what it does is it kind of tunes you into like the coordination of the of the tongue level and the wind power, so that you can play easier. So. I always think that should be the very first thing that we practice. And that's usually like most of my students all assign that as the first thing. Sometimes I'll do it a different way, but 15, 20 minutes of that and things are going to be set up to work better the rest of the practice. And then depending on the student, they might do more. Like I do like maybe 45 minutes or an hour of it. And for me, that feels great. I don't feel tired. I feel better after doing that. I don't have any other questions myself, but uh, if I want to open up the floor to you, if there's another technique or another teaching of some sort from the book that you want to share. So what you're just saying about tongue level. So there, I think everyone that plays the trumpet, even if they say that they are using tongue level, I would bet money on it. Like there's x-ray video stuff. I put, put a video up on, on YouTube that's linked to my website about there's absolutely no human being in the world, even if they're a beginner on the trumpet that can change pitches without their tongue arching and moving in their mouth. Some people do it more efficiently than others. But the one thing that people don't do that I think plays into working with tongue level is single tonguing in a way that Herbert L. Clark taught um, and Claude Gordon taught and other people teach too that Claude would call it K-tongue modified. Um, some people call it anchor tonguing, which I believe is kind of a an incorrect way to describe it. But the idea that when you're saying the T, that the, the very tip of the tongue, and this gets kind of weird where you're saying tip of the tongue and very tip of the tongue. I'm saying the very tip of the tongue is just kind of lightly sitting around the top edge of the bottom teeth. And I'm producing the articulation just slightly back from the tip of the tongue so that I'm doing, I'm going T, 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 T with my tongue like that, as opposed to putting the tip of my tongue on my top teeth, like T, 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 T. The reason why that is so significant is because if you're doing it the other way with your tip of your tongue up on the top teeth, it disrupts the arch in the tongue and makes it so you can't get it to arch up in the front upper part like it has to move up and forward and so each note as you go higher your tongue is kind of going up and forward 
And it's subtly different for every nap, but if you're tonguing the other way, it kind of interferes with that. Now, the remedy that Claude Gordon and Harrell Carr both did is, is to work on K-tonguing by itself. So you're going kiki, 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 and get that to where it's so clean and easy that you can actually play with K just as easy as you could play with T. And then once that's kind of happening, a lot of people will not even know that they've their way of doing single tonguing with a T is actually changed and the tip's no longer going up. So kind of the way I'd summarize it is if you're single tonguing, what I'd say is the correct way with K-tongue modified, then if you are going from any given note that you're going to play, the very front part of the tongue and the arch is going to be identical for slurring, K-tonguing, and single-tonguing this new way. So that then you can even more acutely feel where the notes are. Um, it also helps you understand why it's important to practice models. Like in Claude Gordon's daily trumpet routines, he's got a bunch of different models that he does on each of these little interval exercises. But if you look in the St. Jacome book, like around page 157, He's got a bunch of different articulations and variations on things. And what that does is it reinforces your, your tongue to like find each individual note multiple different ways with different articulation patterns. So it kind of, that trains your, your tongue to like work the right way. So um, I think what happens a lot of times when people are working on trumpet skills and trying to improve themselves is they, they think, well, if I just get this piece of information, all of a, or a new math piece or whatever, I take one lesson from a person, all of a sudden I'm going to like become a great player. If, if it was that simple, then everyone would take, find the perfect person to take a lesson with. And we'd all be like, you know, Rafael Mendez or whatever, you know, but it doesn't work that way because <clears throat> we have to have the correct information, but then like plod through different books and and each of us are going to progress at different rates through different things. So it's not it. I mean, I think that's kind of also we're going back to the beginning. That's kind of why you have to enjoy your own practicing because it's your, your, it's like you're discovering more about the trumpet every day when you're playing, you know, working on it. We could go on forever talking about this. This is just yeah. uh, fascinating stuff, but sadly our time together has come to an end but I have one final question for you. Where can I buy a shirt like that? <laughs> this one was somewhere on Facebook on some sort of an ad that popped up for Hawaiian shirts. I forget the name of it, but yeah, it was, isn't that crazy? We'll have to grab a grab a screenshot of this. Yeah, it's been a feast on my eyes. I mean, this is an audio podcast, but I've been sitting here looking at these two shirts. It's uh, quite a spectacle. Well, thanks for pressing play on today's episode. Make sure you press that little subscribe button on your podcast player if you haven't already, so you'll never miss an episode when they publish. And if you want to dive deeper, you can visit me on the web at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com, where you'll find ways to connect with me via social media and even a customized mobile app that has a plethora of material I think you'll find interesting. Again, that's jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. This is James Newcomb, signing off.